All right. Uh, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, our hip quotient just shot through the roof here. We have a worship leader with a mohawk. I mean, how cool is that? That uh, We think that's temporary, which might be a good thing. But I don't know. It looks kind of good. It, it works for you. Now, if he comes with uh, pink and black stripes on it next week, we'll, we'll, we'll really have arrived somehow. Um, listen, open up your Bibles to Psalm 139, and uh, we're going to get started there this morning. We started a series, if you, are, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, this is the Summer of Love here at Neighborhood Bible Church. And lest you live through the 60s and you're thinking of something different, uh, this is a study in the book of Psalms. So it might be a little different than what went on in the 60s. Uh, but Psalm 139 is where we're at this morning. Last week we looked at this where we just sang this song, this really powerful song, Oh, How He Loves Us. And you could say that a few different ways. And I think actually both are biblical and I think both are, are appropriate but you could see how if you tipped it one way or the other all the time, how it, would, um, how it would shade and shadow your walk with God. Let me say that sentence two different ways. Oh, how he loves us. That's one way. Here's the second way. Oh, how he loves us. See the emphasis? I think it's biblical to say one or the other. Sometimes people want to fight over both of those. They're both in the Bible. Uh, but this morning, and really this series, here's what we're focusing on. Oh, how He loves us. Emphasis is on the lover. The emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on discovering who it is that we call, as a Christian, our beloved. And to realize He's revealed Himself this way in Scripture, and that we, as followers, better learn to be okay with calling God our lover, because that's how He's reached out and revealed Himself to us and speaks to us in terms of us being the bride, the church, not a building, but people, as Rich so eloquently told us, and Him being the groom, and that there's been uh, an engagement ring, there has been a down payment, that our groom is coming back for us, and we're going to be the radiant bride being received by the groom. Uh, this morning, what I want to talk to you is about knowledge. And one of the things I said um, two weeks ago, because we took a break from it last week, is that oftentimes, especially in our culture that we've been raised in, in our day and age, uh, we have tended to lean heavily on reason and on thought and on these kinds of things and, and dismissed at times even the idea of emotion, looking at it as completely suspect and dismissing it as not valid somehow. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that in the opening weeks. Uh, and now we're going to talk about knowledge. And some of, some of our hearts and minds immediately go to a certain, a certain place with that. But we're going to talk about relational knowledge. It's going to look a little different than maybe we've thought about in the past. If you think about knowledge, knowledge is power. And we have right now uh, the millennial generation, which is what most people are calling those born somewhere between 1980 and the year 2000, is the most educated generation in American history. For people born in this age group, and I think those coming up as well, knowledge and education is power. It's a given. Of course I'm going to go and get an education. And so this generation is hungry for knowledge. It's all they've known is to, is to have opportunities there and to seize those opportunities and to, to grow in that. Now, some of you may have just battled through a school year last year with your student, or maybe you were the student, and you're like, uh-uh, that ain't me. Um, 
there's hope. Uh, there's always next year. You could just start school year fresh. Uh, we also, I'm looking at the faces of some teachers, and they're like, huh? Trust me, go do the research. It's there. This really is the most educated uh, generation of all time for, for Americans. Um, Knowledge is interesting because uh, because people want it, people seek it. It's really a privilege. If you go to other places where knowledge isn't readily available, you realize how good we have it here in America, um, that it really is available to, 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 to people. And yet knowledge is interesting because if you accumulate too much, how many of you like being around a know-it-all? You just don't, right? That's knowledge, mind you, with kind of a sin tint to it. But there's this tipping point where knowledge can be something different. Uh, think about someone that, that you're in love with. This could be a spouse. This could be a parent. This could be a friend or, uh, or whatever. But think about someone that you love deeply and intimately and their knowledge. Now, it could be good and helpful, their knowledge, but it can also be annoying. Okay? It can be downright annoying when that person knows something and, and you know that they know it better than you. And that can, be, that can cause friction. It can be intimidating. Think about two people as they're growing closer and their knowledge of you actually becomes intimidating. Isn't it true that you can hurt most deeply those that you're closest to? And we often do. That's a source of deep regret. It's also a source of deep fear once you've been wounded that way. Man, I'm never going to get so open to someone that they could hurt me that deeply again. So knowledge can be annoying, it can be intimidating, it can also be very, very comforting, right? So you take knowledge, you mix it with a sin nature, and it can, and it can produce all kinds of different things. Uh, when we take this idea of knowledge and shift it to our beloved that is unlike any person that we've ever met, any other kind of relationship that we could possibly dream of having, I think a couple of different things can tend to happen. Let me throw this out to you. As we talk about the knowledge of God, Okay, and we just let our brains start to think there. Think about what you've been taught. Think about what you've read. Think about what you know. And um, there's, there's a word out there that is, is the word omniscient. Okay? The word omniscient is taking the words omni, which means all or everything, and shint, which we would say science. Let's take the word science out of there, okay? Omniscience. Omniscience means this, all Knowledge. God is omniscient, right? God is omnipresent. Okay, so we have these words to describe God that don't fit anything else except for God. Now, what this means, before we just skip by this, because sometimes we can say, of course he is, he's God, he knows everything. But before we skip by this, let me throw this out to you. Think about the intricate details of every discipline of science that you've ever wrestled with. Think of every math problem that by definition is a problem to you. He knows it. It's not a problem to him. Geology. I mean, take any subject that, that, that you could possibly think of. Think of the past, the present, and the future. All history. All the mysteries of history where we wonder, why did that happen? Or what really ha-? God knows that. Not only does he know that, he knew that before the foundation of the world. What it does is it starts to paint a picture that if we stop and dwell on that, which many worship songs do this for you, that's why it's good to come with the community of God and just call out the praise of God and think about who it is we're worshiping. He's sitting on a throne right now, and he knows. And that's really, really powerful to think about. I'm not saying that God is bright, sharp, a genius, or a brain. Everything I just said uh, defines kind of a finite creature that's limited by time and space. I'm saying God is 
totally outside all of those. Look on your notes for a minute. Psalm 147, verse 5. I put it in there for you, I think. It says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, these are worthwhile things to think about when you come to church, when you're worshiping God, when you're walking throughout your day, is to think about God as omniscient. God knows everything. But isn't it possible, and maybe this has happened in your life, isn't it possible that you could come across that information, that you could dwell on that, and that doesn't necessarily breed intimacy or closeness? It might breed other things in you. It might well up awe. It should well up fear. Both fear as in I'm scared and fear as in woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and, and I'm but a bug to, to, this, to this creature that we're discussing and thinking about. But it doesn't necessarily draw to mind intimacy, closeness, and the idea of God being a lover. I had a professor in, uh, in college, and he was one of my favorite of all times. And one of the ways I can tell of the impact of a person who has taught me is how many times in my head I think, what would this person do in this situation? Or how would he say this? Or, or, or these things that he says kind of comes to mind. And one of the legacies this guy passed on to me was this. He would tell us over and over again, here we were, young, uh, young guys getting ready to, to go into ministry full-time, and he would say this over and over, we're getting our head filled with knowledge, we're learning to study, we're learning to get these different tools. And he would say over and over and over, he'd say this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Catch that? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. What that means is this, I can stand up here and expound all knowledge, but without love, 1 Corinthians says, right? What am I? Yeah. I mean, just the symbol over and over and over and over. And you're just like, stop! Without love, that's what knowledge is. It's a know-it-all, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Rich Henderson shared a 100% success rate of inviting people to the neighborhood workabout. What's interesting is we dialogued about that as we thought this. We thought, man, here's this woman who, uh, life circumstances, I don't know why or what the deal is, but here she is a widow in, in San Jose. I don't know if she's all alone, but what she knows now is this. If she were to hear a prowler outside of her house, she would know who, 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 who she could call. She knows there's a neighbor that cares, right? Rich is a smart guy. Rich has a ton of things to offer people. But it's now, it's almost like it's accessed now because there's a relationship, because care has been on display. What I want to do is I want to, I want to point out something that should be bluntly obvious to us, but that I hope hits us and lands on us with some fresh weight this morning, and that's this. God knows us. God knows me. God knows you. God knows every single person that you're going to interact with this week. And I want to just think on that for a minute. I mean, it would be easy enough to just wrap the study up and say, yeah, that fits under the everything, Dave. We already established God knows everything. We're done. Of course He knows us. 
But sometimes all that does is leave us with cold awe and not a relationship. Let me read for you a couple of verses that just give clues to, uh, to where I'm going with this, by the way. To stand here and say God knows everyone is general and breeds in us kind of a sense of, yeah, of course, he's God. But as you read the Bible, there are different things that are said in the Bible that give you indication of this relationship, of what it means to enter into a relationship with God. And many across this room right here could just share testimonies of saying, this is the moment when I entered into a relationship with God. I knew about God. I grew up learning about God. But at one moment in time, I knew God. And it's a glorious story. You ought to share that story with one another. We ought to be talking about that. We ought to have on the tip of our tongues the reason for the hope that is within us. And it really begins in being in this right relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says this, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We're not going to take time to really unpack that, and you have to read the whole chapter to get the context of that. But let me read that again. Listen to this. If anyone loves God, that's human to God, right? That's the direction. If anyone loves God... I would think it would lead on to say, then he knows God. I said this a couple weeks ago. To know God is to love God. But it doesn't say that. It says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't God know everyone? God's omniscient. He knows everything. There's a distinguishing mark in that verse. Let me read another one. 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, and I quote, The Lord knows those who are His. God knows everything, but the Bible calls attention to the fact that the Lord knows those who are His. And that if we love God, that means that we're known by God. Where does love begin? Bible says it clearly. We love because he first loved us, right? When we got Cassie three years ago, we went to kiss Cassie, and here's what Cassie did. Watch my lips. She didn't even, actually, she didn't even do this. I just put my head forward because I know what a kiss is. She just sat there. And Becky kissed her lips. And I would kiss her lips. And we would hug her and kiss her and, and be with her. You know how long it took Cassie to, to learn to kiss? She had no idea. She did not know what to do. She wasn't doing this. I happened to catch it on video. It's really cool because in China, you don't have to wear seatbelts. You know why? There aren't any. So you just sit in the chair, and here's Cassie cruising down the freeway on Becky's lap, and I happen to be videotaping when Cassie puckered her lips. And she has the most luscious little lips. So we just, here's Becky landing one on Cassie. You know how she learned that? Because she had just been inundated with two people that for several days had just been teaching her, pouring in love. Now, we didn't go in, all right, let's have today's lesson plan for Cassie on teaching love this. We didn't do that. Now, all the time, she is the most loving little girl. Today, I left for, I left for church to, this, this morning. Daddy, let me come say goodbye to you. You know what she did? She ran over to me and she gave me a kiss. Where'd she learn that? From me. From Becky. Isn't that beautiful? We love because God first loved us. Those who love God are known by God. Isn't that cool? This is where we're going this morning. Uh, 
Relationships are built on knowledge one of another. It involves self-disclosure. The biblical term we always use is revelation. God self-disclosing. God revealing himself to us. And it involves mutual searching. Psalm 139, read it with me, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Stop and let that fall on you this morning. This majestic one that we're talking about, this known universe, the intricate details of all that's out there, And the Bible in Psalm 139 turns the lens on you and says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Beautiful passage of Scripture. I want to teach you what a merism is. Until this week, I didn't know what a merism was, but I, I learned it, and it's a pretty cool thing. Everyone take your left hand and put it out here just like this. Put your left hand out here. Now take your right hand. Now just hold it there for one second. Here's what he's using. It's a figure of speech in the scriptures. When he says in verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. He says it later on in other places. What he's saying is this. He's saying these two kind of extremes. He's saying not just these two things, but everything in between. Look at the space between your hands. It's not just the two opposites. It's all that is between you. Now go like this and say touchdown. Just kidding. All right. Um... That's what a merism is, okay? Impress your friends this week. Not really. Internalize this. Think about this. When he says that you know these things, it's saying you don't just know these two moments of my day. You know all that is between me, these, these two. And so it's this, it's this all-encompassing knowledge that's there. To even stop and think that you would be the object of the Creator's attention ought to blow your mind. And if it doesn't, it's because you've just grown comfortable with this truth. It ought to just floor us that that is true. I want you to do one of the things with your hands. Right now, take your hands and just fold them like this. Some of you are taught to pray this way. Now, I want you to know something. Right now, God knows something intimate about you, and it seems insignificant, but it's amazing that God reveals that he knows this about you. Look at your hand right now. Some of you have your right thumb over on top of your left thumb. Some of you have your left thumb over on top of your right thumb. You're wrong. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Now, here's the thing. I could take a survey of who did what, but I don't really care. Here's what's fascinating. God knows whether your left thumb is on top or your right thumb is on top. Isn't that powerful? God knows that. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is just communicating the worth of who you are. Talks about sparrows, a little bird falling to the ground. That doesn't happen without the notice of of Almighty Creator God. He goes on to make this statement that even the hairs of your head are numbered in Matthew 10, verse 30. Why would God reveal that in His Holy Word? Why Why would He leave that in Scripture for us to understand? Is God bored that He's counting our head hairs? 
No. God is, God is revealing. He's showing something to us. The most intimate detail, the most insignificant detail, things about you that you don't know. I promise you, you don't know how many hairs are on your head. It cha- <laughs> I take that back. Some of you know. Some of you know. <laughs> well said, Chris. God, God knows. And God reveals to us that He knows so that we could stop and realize God knows the intimate, seemingly insignificant details of our lives. You know what conclusion you can draw from this? I must really matter to God. I must really matter to God. Teachers know this. Youth pastors know this, know this as well. There, there are some kinds of parents who are like helicopter parents. They hover over their... I just saw a teacher smile. They hover over their kids. If the slightest nuance of something goes wrong, boom, there's a parent-teacher conference. We're jumping on this. I've done, I've done some reading recently. There's research that's saying this. Some of these parents are baby boomers raising kids, and they're actually going in. They're sitting in on job interviews with their children. Talk about hovering parents. You know what they're doing? They're wanting to ensure the best for their kid. Now, this is not a parenting philosophy class, and you might have some things to say about that. But the point is this. Do you think Junior at some point begins to think, wow, I'm the apple of my parents' eye. My mom and dad must really care about me to be in my interview with me. It might even be a little awkward. But man, they think, I mean, I, they, they, they care about me. That's being communicated. This attention to detail. This, this, this hovering. This knowledge that is there. I want to just do something almost silly. Okay, I'm going to point out, just because of time, I'm going to point out three areas, three kind of um, modes that, that God knows about us. But what's silly about this is this. It's like, it's like trying to grab all of the ocean and, and show you something from a Dixie cup, and like a see-through Dixie cup, a little clear plastic cup, and say, here, let me talk about the ocean. If grace is an ocean, we're all drowning is what we just saying. The knowledge of God of us is an ocean, and we're going to just be silly. We're going to just talk about this little cup, okay? Because we're finite, and because we're limited on time, and because you're going to start whining about being hungry, and Dave, can we stop? We need to go eat lunch, all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, I'd just keep going. And even then, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really fulfill it. But let's just, let's just go. He knows my secrets. Here are just three areas that God knows. Verse 1 says, you have searched me and known me. God has searched out every nook and cranny, and he knows us. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. God knows our secrets. Now, what I know about everyone in this room is you are a quirky bunch. I don't know your quirks because I don't know you that well. I know some of you pretty well. But if I really wanted to get at your quirks and understand who you were, I would go to your roommate, to your spouse, to your kids, to your parents, to those who know you best. And you know what? I would start to find out some of your quirks. What I love about hanging out in Mexico for a week or camp for a week or just a place, you can't hold it together for a whole week. You can't. So your little quirks come out. I had a great little moment with someone in Mexico and it was just a quirky thing. And it was like, whoops. And, and it just kind of spilled out, and there it was. And there's something about that, though, that 
when you're not instantly rejected or shamed or put down for that, um, you know what happens? It actually just draws you closer. Because you're like, oh, okay, now you know a little bit more of who I really am. And, and, and the masks start to come down. Sometimes we take off masks on purpose, right? We start to pull away. Now, everyone has masks. Everyone has things about them that they don't reveal to, 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 to people. And this is true of every last person. I don't share. Some people are worried sometimes when I give illustrations from my home. I'm a smart enough guy to check with my wife to say, is this good to say in front of a lot of people? And she'll say, uh-uh. I'm like, that's what I thought. I'll just use that as personal devotion. Um, but it really is a good illustration. No. Uh, so, I mean, I check with that. I don't share everything, right? And neither, neither do you. There are masks that are, that are in our lives. Sometimes we don't even know that we're wearing them. Here's an interesting thing that psychiatrists uh, talk about and, and counselors and pastors is sometimes people will come and share things with me and they say, I've never told this to anyone. You know what they're saying? They're saying today in this moment, I'm trusting you to take off this part of a mask and I'm going to tell you. And sometimes it's kind of shocking to go, man, this person doesn't have anyone in their life that they've ever shared this burden with. And oftentimes, that's when healing begins, isn't it? When we walk into the light, we step into the light, we reveal, we self-disclose, and begin to be known in that way. Let me ask you this. What if, what if somehow, supernaturally, there were no masks whatsoever that you could have on for a day? That somehow who you are was just projected. It was just revealed. You didn't get to be the gatekeeper of what was said or not said. You know what the ultimate place for this is? Social media, right? You Twitter, Facebook, or or project on a website who you want people to see that you are. And you closely guard those things that you don't want seen. What if somehow all of that was just out there for everyone to see for a day? A little unnerving? Yeah. Yeah. That would be intimidating. That would make us probably withdraw somewhat. Psalm 69.5 just says this, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Part of the distressing thing when you begin to come and draw close into a relationship with God is you begin to think on the fact that God's omniscient and then you begin to place yourself under the, under the umbrella of light and scope that he has. Say, wow, if he knows the intricate details of the universe, that means, yeah, he knows that. And it also means, yeah, he knows that as well. And there's all kinds of reactions to that that we as human beings have that reveal things. I saw on the Tour de France this last week um, a sign that made me stop and rewind and watch it again. It was a sign on a cardboard piece of paper or a cardboard thing that said, Hi, Dad. And I was like, Whoa! Dad got a shout out! I mean, it's always Hi, Mom! And Mom tattooed on, on, on the shoulder. And it was so weird to see Hi, Dad that I actually had to rewind it and watch it again. And I called someone in my family's attention to it. They didn't seem to care. But I was pretty excited as the dad in the house. Hi, Dad. You know why hi, Mom, I think is so appealing? I think part of the appeal of Mom is this. Think about Mom. Mom has known you from before you were born. Mom knows those things about you that no one else knows. And you know what most moms 
do. They love and accept you in spite of that knowledge. That's why Hi Mom, I think, is so appealing. Let me just turn your attention. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is a scene that, that we're familiar with. Jesus is meeting, he's waiting at a well, basically. There's a woman there. The disciples are, are off in town getting some lunch. Jesus is there. He strikes up a conversation with this woman at the well. And many of you know the story well, so I'm not even going to go into it. Uh, if you need backstory, you can go read it later. Bottom line is this. The woman hide behinds the, the woman hides behind a mask. She doesn't, she doesn't put forth all that she is, right? She answers and only gives what she wants to give. That's what we all do. So she's just acting how, how we act. But along comes Jesus. He's sitting there, and he knows her secrets. He knows what's behind the mask. And he starts to gently prod at that. He, ge- he gently starts to, to reveal to her what her secrets are. A little unnerving if you were to sit there and someone started to, to do this to you. What does she do? She retreats. Remember? She all of a sudden goes from this conversation that was going this way, and she says this, Oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about ritual worship and locations of worship. That's a much safer topic than me and my husband's and my love life. Remember that? That's her saying, wow, I'm starting to get exposed. I'm going to retreat from that. A common thing when God begins to pursue, when the lover pursues, it's too much. And so people pull it back. We've seen this in the garden. Where are you? Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? They were hiding from God. Jesus pursues. And in spite of the knowledge, in spite of understanding who she is, he offers her living Water. It's a beautiful picture, Jesus and this woman at the well, of how the lover pursues. The most loving thing Jesus could do in that moment was to expose the truth of of who she was. To just bypass that wouldn't be loving at all. He goes right into this nugget in her life. Do you think that having multiple husbands has been a massive part of her life story? Of course it has. That's right where he wants to come in and offer grace and offer living water, as, 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 as he terms it. And so he pursues her because he knows her. We say something here at this church all the time. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are is Jesus saying, come with your secrets. I'm going to begin to dialogue with you, even with your secrets. Walk in this building and worship with us. Be with us. Commune with us. Go through life together here with us. Journey with us. Come as you are. But like Jesus, he doesn't leave her in that state. He says, come as you are, but don't stay that way. I'm going to, I'm going to needle right in to where your deepest need is. The very thing you don't want to talk about, the very thing that causes you to clam up and run away, that's where I'm going because it's the most loving thing I could do. I can't leave that that unhealthy cancer there in your life. We're going to talk about that. As a community of Jesus followers, that's what come as you are, but don't stay that way is all about. Church is uncomfortable. Amen? It just is. Getting together in smaller groups of people where now you're known a a little bit more intimately and your quirks are harder to hide than just on a Sunday for an hour, it gets uncomfortable. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Now there's a positive element to this too. Let me quickly say this. Jesus knows the reality of who we are. 
In Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The context is serving, giving. As we do service, He says, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, do it before me. Don't do it before men to receive praise. Verse 4 says this, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. God knows our secrets. That's a negative thing if you're doing secret stuff that's sinful. Although it's only negative for a season. Discipline's unpleasant for a season, but it produces a harvest of righteousness. But it's also positive. Every time that you have denied yourself, every time that in response to the love of Jesus, you've mimicked Jesus and you've put to death yourself so that others could live, you know what that does? That brings delight to the Father's soul. brings delight to God when that happens. If you're serving in this church, praise God for that. You're living the normal Christian life. If I never, in the last five years that we've been around, have come and said, thank you for doing that, praise God for that. I'll try to do that anyways because I'm just joyful that I see the body working. But be doing it for the Lord. Be doing it in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's reward enough is that your Father knows your lifestyle. There's a church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and Jesus comes along with penetrating words and he says this, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. He says this to a whole church. Church at Sardis, dead, right across the front sign. Come to a dead church. We've just been pronounced dead by Jesus. There's a reputation that we can have. There's an appearance that we can have. But Jesus says this, there is a reality to who you are. And Jesus comes along and says, I know your deeds. I mean, I see in secret what the deeds are. Before you even speak a word, I know why you're saying that word. It's either to build your own kingdom or it's to build my kingdom. I know your deeds. Your reputation has has no matter to me. There is a reality of you standing before God, naked and unashamed as you're clothed in Christ or ashamed as you say, God, I can't pull strings with you. I can't put a mask on with you. God knows us as we really are and still offers grace and love. Secondly, Jesus knows our scars. Every single one of us in this room has scars. Some of them physical, emotional, spiritual. There are just hurts in our lives that we live with. Listen to verse 7 through 12. Follow along if you have your Bible open still in Psalm 139. Just listen for the range of life that is expressed here. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Do you notice the response in a way? David's writing that you have this intimate knowledge of me. Now listen to what he does. He's evidently tested the far reaches of trying to get away from such knowledge. Hiding in the garden like Adam and Eve. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Some of you are going through the dark night of the soul right now. You're the Israelites wandering in the desert. You're marveling at God's provision, but it's just hard right now. To let the truth of what Scripture says that we talked about two weeks ago, God is near. He's intimate. He's imminent. Profoundly changes our desert, doesn't it? Then to understand that God knows not only where you are, what's going on in your life, but in His perfect timing, how He's going to see you through this is utterly life-changing. It utterly changes the situation that you are in, even if the circumstances remain exactly the same. Psalm 31.7 says this, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Well, he must have been writing that from a good season, from a mountaintop. He must have just got home from camp. Listen to how this goes on. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. That's how he can rejoice and be glad in his steadfast love. How can you rejoice in trouble? Do you see that omniscience here, knowledge of that trouble, isn't enough? Let me paint a picture from a family scenario. Uh, big brother can be there when little brother injures himself, right? He can have more knowledge than the little brother and understand what just went on. You just broke your leg. I can see it. Your leg doesn't go straight. It goes like this. And you broke it because you jumped off that tree stump. You're a knucklehead. Does this breed intimacy, closeness, or comfort? No. Just annoyance and the desire to have your legs working so you could chase your brother. Right? That's all that breeds. That's knowledge. Isn't it true that a doctor can come and diagnose something to you? It doesn't breed closeness with the doctor necessarily. They're on an earthly level. They're omniscient. They're not omniscient. They have knowledge that you don't possess. They've instructed you in something, but that doesn't breed closeness. Here's what breeds closeness. Closeness happens when mom comes along to said younger brother, and doesn't only know what happens, but comes alongside, comforts, says, I know that must really hurt. I know this. I know that. Wipes the tear from the child's eye. Now there's intimacy. Now there's closeness. Twenty-some years later, it produces tattoos and signs that say, Hi, Mom. Because you just say, Man, that kind of love, I don't get anywhere else. Psalm 56, verse 8 says this, You have seen me tossing and turning through the night. You have collected all my tears and preserved them in your bottle. You have recorded every one in your book. 
Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, what's the Jesus? Without sin. Blameless in it. But he's walked as well through the valley of the shadow of death. Our beloved came to us. The term is Emmanuel. We sing this at Christmas time. We've got to sing it year-round. He lived among us. He knows the human condition. But if all he did was identify with us in our troubles, all he'd be is a, a, a peer to us, right? He could be Job's friends for that matter. But instead, he lived through this. He understands the human condition from a human being and yet without sin. Verse 16 of Hebrews goes on to say this, Let us then, with that knowledge in mind, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Do you hear how intimacy is being formed? Not just because he knows, but because he knows and he cares. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That our lover knows our scars draws us near. It builds intimacy. It builds oneness in the relationship. Know that you're not crying alone. That's the big idea. That's the knowledge that God has for each one of us. Thirdly, let me say this. He knows my striving. Every single person in some way is searching for something. They're either reaching out with all their might for happiness, what they think is going to bring them happiness, what they perceive is, is a reward, or they're hanging on and holding on to what they think will make them happy. Jesus knows this and pursues this. Let me give you a story from the Bible. The rich young ruler. Is the rich young ruler striving? He is. He comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers as he often does with a question. Why do you call me good? I mean, I think this guy was just like Superboy. You know, he just did all these things. And he's like, I want the next thing. This, is, this rabbi looks like he's got something to offer. I want to check off that too. And Jesus flips his world upside down. Remember what happens there? He's striving. Has he kept all the rules from the time he was young? Yeah. Has he really? No. The Sermon on the Mount exposes that you haven't kept the Ten Commandments since you were young, rich young ruler. But Jesus doesn't even needle in on that. Is the sin of pride probably prevalent in rich young rulers of that day and today? Yeah. But evidently, that wasn't, I don't think, the uttermost top thing in his life. That wasn't what he was clinging to or striving for, for happiness. You know what tells me that? The rest of the passage. Jesus knows where his hope lies. Remember what he asked him to do? What does he ask the rich young ruler to do? Go and sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. Now, who does this benefit? The poor, to be sure, right? They get a meal in their stomach. They get a sweet new chariot or something. They're getting stuff. But does this benefit the rich young ruler? Absolutely it would. In fact, what Jesus realizes, and this is why I think he tells it to him, is this. You're holding on to this with everything that you are. And until you let go of this, poof, you'll never reach for and cling to me. You know where hope and happiness and reward and life comes? It comes in me. 
with both hands, all in, with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And so here's what you're clinging to. Yeah, you've got pride issues. You're totally hypocritical. You've got some other stuff. But this is the biggie. Now, it's interesting. We live in a very wealthy area. Sometimes we come to Jesus, we go, he's not going to ask God. That's not literal, right? He's not going to ask me to sell all my stuff and give it away to the poor. He just might. If you're building a spiritual kingdom, doesn't that make sense that the commander-in-chief would say to some of his people, absolutely, show that I'm greater than all this stuff by getting rid of it. Here's the test for you and I. If we're weighing this out and saying, "Mm, I don't know if I could do that, I don't know that we've discovered the treasure of who Jesus is. I don't know that if our life is built like we might sing about and say that it is on Jesus alone as our happiness. Take everything else in this world, Lord, as long as I've got you. But if we're asked with with what what the rich young ruler is asked, Think about this. The most difficult thing Jesus will ever ask you to do is the most loving thing he could possibly ask of you. Let me give you two, two quick more snapshots. These are from Luke chapter 9. To one person he says this. The guy comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you, where, wherever you go. I don't know, but I could surmise maybe this guy's thing is comfort and safety. Some of you struggle with comfort and safety as the number one idol, as the God. Man, I could do a lot of this, but don't ask me to move into that neighborhood. I could do a lot of things, but don't ask me to give up my kids to missions. I could do a lot of things, but don't you dare take my comfort and safety away. Here's what Jesus replies, Luke chapter 9. Foxes have holes and birds uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You'll follow me wherever I go? Let me tell you something. That means being homeless. To another person, he says this. That person says, first let me come and bury my father. Jesus replies, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here's another one. Let me say farewell to my family. Jesus says to that person, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's the question. What is is it costing you to follow Jesus? If it's been just a quick uh, prayer and card that I fell out, f- filled out, I think you're missing the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To many of the disciples, it meant leaving their profession to go follow this guy around for three years. Leaving nets, leaving tax collector booths, leaving the normal path. I've known college students that have left the normal path of education and a degree to go give their lives away. I got an email yesterday from a guy who just shares stories on the mission field of what it's like to have just given it all away. He happens to have a family that totally understands why he's out there bringing the gospel to people who will never get it any other way than if this guy obeys and follows Jesus out into the bush with his children. By the way, he was arrested last week. By the way, God was sovereign and used it to further the kingdom. I'm going to have him share next time he's in town. Jesus knows our striving. The cost of following Jesus is high, but the cost of not following Jesus is immeasurably higher. Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth. 
Just like he told these people the truth, the woman at the well the truth. Just listen to verses 13 to 17, and we're wrapping up with this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. When does this knowledge of who you are begin? When does this knowledge of striving and what you're going after begin? It's clear from this passage, it doesn't begin at birth. It begins at conception. Next pregnant woman you come across, you ask, is that child in there striving? The closer she gets to her delivery date, she, she'll, she'll tell you. You better believe it. Right now, my sister-in-law has two of them in there striving. I just can't even imagine one. They're in there wrestling around, doing things, whatever. God knows about those things. This isn't the only passage, by the way. Side note, what is the Christian's response to the abortion pandemic in this country. It ought to be something. It ought to be loud and clear that we're to have a voice for those who aren't speaking for themselves. Total side issue, but I can't talk about this passage without calling that out. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Just listen. Before I formed you, this is God talking to Jeremiah the prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I, Jeremiah, said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. God retorts back. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to, to all... to." Uh, For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Anyone who's commissioned into ministry, no matter how public or private it is, you're commissioned by God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of what? God. Not first church of whatever, Not ordination of whatever. Not degree of whatever. God commissions people. God moves people in and out of ministries. Now, lest you think this is just for Jeremiah or David in Psalm 139, let's hearken back to Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Several months now. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Who's he writing to in in Ephesians? The saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. These are real Christians. These are real followers. Not in name only, but in deed. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. 
Don't read Jeremiah 1. Don't read Psalm 139 and think that's just for biblical people, biblical characters. This applies to you before you live today, before you filled your lungs with air for the first time. You were known intimately by God. My dad at my soccer games used to do something that, as a teen, may have embarrassed me, but as a kid, I loved it. He had this red bullhorn, and it wasn't mechanical, but it took his voice and it projected it. And every time I'd get near the ball, Go, David! Good job, David! He'd just call out from the sidelines. He would shout at me all through the game. You know how much my dad loves sports? About this much. When his kids are playing it, or when he gets to play with his kids, that's the only time. My dad never would sit down and watch any sporting event Unless you paid him. And if you paid him, I don't think he'd do it. But here he was at every soccer game cheering me on. You know what that gave me a picture of as I thought about our Heavenly Father? Think about this. Dad celebrated every good deed, just like our Heavenly Father. God celebrates our striving, our going for it. The other thing is that I wasn't alone in any injury. I played hard, and I got injured sometimes. And I was never alone in that. There was something different about being injured and having courage to go into the fight, knowing that dad was on the sidelines. Something about that made it better and okay as a kid playing soccer. Finally, I would walk off the field. I don't care if we won or if we lost. I don't care if I had a great game or a lousy game. I knew my dad loved me the same. That's a beautiful picture. You get done with your day and you go, Lord, I had a lousy game. I blew it. Three times I could have scored. I whiffed on them all. I'm ashamed. The love God has for you encompasses that. You can rest secure in that, knowing that he has you. I want to wrap up with these three things. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. Listen to this. My sheep hear my voice. And I, the shepherd, I know them. And they follow me. How important is it to know that we're known by the Good Shepherd? A lot of times we take the Bible as very self-focused, all from our perspective looking at God. And the Bible time and again calls attention to God looking at us. God's the central figure in the Bible. It's His story. I know my sheep and they follow me. Three results of knowing being known and following. Ben and Laura, why don't you come on up as I read these off rather quickly. What is supernatural confidence? Jeremiah 1.8 says this, Do not be afraid of them. All these people I'm sending you to, don't be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Supernatural comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 is talking about the God... Of all comfort. The God of all comfort. That's a great title to know about God. Who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In the same way God teaches us to love, in the same way that we teach our kids to pucker up and kiss... You know, God's instructing you in how to comfort other people. How's he doing it? 
He's modeling it for you. He's comforting you. Are we to hoard all this comfort we get from God and make it about us? No, no, no. God is bringing you through, friends. He's bringing you through your current fire so that you could be God's hands and feet, give it away and bring other people, walk with other people through their fire. That's the picture of the body of Christ. That's the picture of those outside these walls who don't have a taste of the God of all comfort. Hebrews 4.16, we just read it, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Lastly, supernatural care. 1 Peter 5.7 says this, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. If you are known by God, if you are following God, I can say this confidently, you are experiencing supernatural confidence. You are experiencing supernatural comfort. You are experiencing supernatural care. God's Spirit resides in you. It's the down payment of what's one day going to be when all of this is restored. If this is foreign to you and you've never tasted on that, would you, would you test yourself to see if you're really found in Christ today? Psalm 139, this is what we wrap up with. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them, some of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Father, we praise you that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you that you haven't left us as orphans. You haven't left us, God. You're here in the midst of our hurts. You're here in the midst of our joys. You're here in the midst of our confusion today. You're in the midst of what we perceive as messed up timing. Help us to lean in on that, to run to that. God, for those who in this room are running away from that kind of intimate knowledge, we call out to you as the hound of heaven to keep pursuing them. May you find them in the pig slop. May you find them on the run. May you find them in hiding. And God, if that's us today, turn our hearts back to you. Help us not to be afraid of the one that we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.